You don't really need to know, or probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. On today's episode, we're rewriting history with new images from the James Webb Space Telescope. There's an Alzheimer's drug breakthrough, and the moon could be getting its very own time zone. But first, it was on this day in 1904, Nikola Tesla developed the process of the ball lightning formation in electrical world and engineer. Seven. Three, two, and liftoff. Since December 2021, the James Webb Space Telescope has been revealing images of our distant past, and most recently it found six massive galaxies that some scientists never thought could exist. The telescope is so powerful it might have just shattered scientific understanding of the universe. This is Ivo Lab, a researcher from Swinburne University of Technology. As opposed to the Milky Way, which is this grand design spiral galaxy like you have seen in pictures, you know, with the beautiful spiral arms, this galaxy is 30 times smaller. So all those stars are jam-packed in a tiny area of space. It's kind of like you, when you have a human, an adult that weighs 100 kilograms, um, and they're just all, they're six centimeters tall. So all, all that mass is just packed into a tiny little human. Scientists think there might be whole galaxies as large and mature as our own Milky Way. But that's a surprise because they're being seen shortly after the dawn of the universe when we would expect them to be much smaller and simpler. The first galaxies began in pools of mysterious substance called dark matter. And as astrophysicist Joe Ligia explained to Al Jazeera News, that's not what we're seeing here. We know how these dark matter clumps form. We know that normal matter should follow them. We know the ratio at which dark matter and normal matter exists as part of our standard model. Um, and these galaxies seem to have too much normal matter. Too much matter means the earliest stars in our universe were heavier than expected and developed sooner than expected, possibly containing some elements essential for life. Webb's ability to see new frequencies of light has opened up new areas of investigation. Now the findings will challenge models of how stars were born. I expect when the dust settles, when we get follow-up observations, when we get more, when we get better data, we will, we will probably find that cosmology is the same and that uh, there's something else going on in these systems that we don't understand. Some combination of stars forming really early, galaxies forming way faster than we expected, um, and maybe some uh, exotic physics that, that aren't currently in our current models. It's sort of a crazy thing. In 2020, as COVID-19 swept its way across the world, two origin stories began to spread across the globe too. It was the seafood market and the research lab, an animal crossover versus a lab leak. The theories have been dueling for three years and now two US agencies have made up their mind on the matter. The US Department of Energy as well as the FBI have concluded that the COVID-19 virus most likely originated from a lab leak in China and that they've had their suspicions for a while now. FBI Director Christopher Wray joined Fox News to acknowledge this for the first Time. The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, etc., who focus specifically on the dangers 
of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses like COVID, uh, and the concerns that, that in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, uh, the threats that those could pose. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government controlled lab that killed millions of Americans. And that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for. The Chinese government denies that, but Ray says they've tried to hide evidence from the world. The observation that the Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here, the work that we're doing. These comments came just days after the US Department of Energy also concluded with low confidence that the virus had likely originated from a laboratory leak, describing it as an accident. Other US agencies believe that the virus emerged naturally, the view that had been the mainstream scientific consensus for much of the pandemic. The evidence strongly points to this being a natural occurrence of a jumping of a virus from a bat to an animal species to human. And there's still no definitive answer or agreement from the US government on the overall origin and according to Josh Meyer, US Today's domestic security correspondent, we may never know. I think, you know, we're going to be trying to figure this out for for years and we may never get to a conclusion uh, about exactly how it started. Um, But I think we're going to be trying to treat it like China does have something to hide and we're trying to figure out what it is. But this is important because we need to figure out how this emerged, how it spread from one community to another to become such a global crisis so that we can stop the next one. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the oldest known sentence ever written is decoded and a cure for Alzheimer's is on the horizon. The oldest known sentence in the ancient language of Canaanites has been decoded by a team of Israeli archaeologists. The inscription was discovered on an ivory lice comb unearthed in the Tel Akish, an ancient Canaanite and Israelite city in the biblical kingdom of Judah. The Canaanite language developed in the 2nd or 3rd millennium BC and is believed to be the first known alphabetic system of writing. The comb, it was found in a pit with other items from different periods. This is Dr. Madeleine Mumkuaglu, an archaeologist from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I decided to, to look under the microscope if there is any, any sign of a head louse. And indeed, there is. This is very exciting, of course, because just think, even if it is from the late bronze, it's already 3,000 years. With this discovery, Madeline knew she wanted to find DNA, so she took a sample and sent it for testing, but the results came back with nothing. So it was a bit disappointing, and that's why I forgot about these combs. They were in a drawer at home, until I said that enough is enough. I'm going to write an article about the history of the combs. As I was finishing uh, the article, I decided to have a good picture. So I took a picture and because I am perfectionist, I brought another strong light and, and suddenly I saw this letter, this X on, on one on the side. I was sure that at least this was a letter. So I called the Professor Garfinkel and I said, we have letters. And to decode those letters, they've turned to Dr. Daniel Vinstub. The inscription is here in this side. The sentence on the com is Yatush hat ze da le kamal 
שיער וזקת. The meaning is, may this task root out the lies of the hair and the beard. This is the first ever complete sentence, Canaanite sentence. The common ancestor of all alphabetic writing systems existing today is the Canaanite alphabet. For example, the letter Q in the Latin alphabet came from the letter Kuf, that means monkey, a body of the monkey with the tail. The Canaanites invented the alphabet. They produced about 30 signs, 30 letters. It is revolutionary. One of the most important inventions in the history of human culture. According to the World Health Organization, the number of people living with dementia is currently estimated at 55 million. This number is expected to increase to 139 million by 2050, but there is some potential hope on the horizon. In a small study, neuroscientists have tested a new approach to treat Alzheimer's disease and they think they might have cracked it. Research from Ben Gurion University in Israel said they've developed an artificial molecule that has cured 30 mice with the disease. After five months of consuming the molecule and drinking water, all of them made a full recovery, gaining back their cognitive abilities. The small number of mice were not given the molecule and their condition deteriorated. The team of neuroscientists believe that within one decade their molecule could be developed into a medicine to treat Alzheimer's in humans. This is Professor Shira Kanafo, one of the team's scientists. So these mice develop quite uh, fast uh, all many characteristics of the disease and one of them is the inability to learn and uh, memorize new experience so they have impaired cognition. But if we treat these mice with a new drug, the Vivid 4, they behave wild-type mice. It means that they behave like mice that don't have these mutations. So it means that we can actually fix the cognitive impairment using this drug. So how does this differ from other studies with the same aim? In this case, the researchers are looking at a protein called VDAC1. VDAC1 is a critical protein in the brain, in the brain of Alzheimer's patient. This VDAC is... Overexpressed. There is too much of the VDAC, kills the cells. And the idea of this drug is to inhibit VDAC, to prevent the cell death and to prevent the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. The main goal that you have is to pass it on and to do clinical trials. But the way to the clinical trials is long. You have to do a lot of preclinical research, check the toxicity of the drug and the pharmacological properties of the drug before you even start the clinical trial. Scientists are careful at this stage to stress the study was done on a small sample of mice. If successful, this could mean a real breakthrough and a life changer for millions of people around the world living with Alzheimer's disease and their families. Still to come this Sunday 7, the moon gets its own time zone and a breakdown of the dazzling spectacle lighting up the sky. Right after this. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You're listening to the 
Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. Most of us have at some point stopped to gaze up at the moon, but have you ever wondered what time it is up there? For those who have, their question may soon have an answer as space organisations are considering giving the moon its very own time zone. Dozens of lunar missions are planned for the decade ahead, and the European Space Agency says it's time to get serious about lunar timekeeping. But what is time and how does it change on the moon? Former US astronaut Mike Massimino knows all about space-time and joined NBC News to explain. Really what time is, as far as the space program goes, astronauts and the people in the control center, it's just a way to measure what needs to be done next, really. At what time are we going to rendezvous? At what time are we going to do our spacewalks? At what time are we going to bed? At what time are we doing this experiment? And you really follow the plan, the timeline, really closely. So time, for me as an astronaut, was when do I do what next? What is the right time to do this next thing? How much time do I have to the next event? And that's what it really is for uh, for astronauts in space, and particularly when we were orbiting around the planet like my friends are doing right now in the space station. You're going around the planet every 90 minutes. To go across <laughs> right. country from California to, to, to Florida takes about 11 minutes. So you're going to be resetting that watch all the time. So we used to go by <laughs> mission elapsed time on the space shuttle to know what to do when. Clocks even move differently on the moon, somehow gaining 56 microseconds every day they're up there. And as an astronaut, there's a lot that needs to be done in a day, and that complicates things even more. Here on Earth, one day is dictated by the complete rotation of our planet in 24 hours. On the moon, it takes 29.53 Earth days for the moon to do the same. The moon, relative to us, is is rotating at the, at the same uh, speed that it's following us. So that's why, if you look at it one day, we can see like a, a sunrise and a sunset, or one rotation of the planet, it's longer for the moon. But that, you know, we're not gonna go by that. I don't think anyone wants to go with a 29 day. I'd be shocked <laughs> if they go with the lunar day because the thing is, it's not just the astronauts on the moon, it's the control centers on the ground. And that needs to be in sync. You need to be in lockstep with these different control centers for the space station around the planet and maybe for the moon as well, there'll be control centers all over the place. So I think we're going to be working on some sort of 24-hour clock. And whether it's <laughs> Greenwich Mean Time or Houston Time or whatever they come up with, I, I don't think we're going to go with that 29 and a half day time. That's too complicated. <laughs> Beyond astronauts and ground controllers being able to tell the time on the moon, the need for standard timekeeping in space is also essential for guidance and navigation. And as space agencies around the world race to establish bases on the moon and beyond, time is of the essence. mean to engage in artistic expression. From a scientific standpoint, researchers at Carnegie Mellon University are trying to figure that out with the help of artist-in-resident Frida. Frida is not your typical artist. Frida is actually a robotic arm with a brush taped to it and uses artificial intelligence to collaborate with humans on works of art. It can make mistakes and it works with an artistic impression. But does that mean Frida is an artist? Frida stands for Framework and Robotics Initiative for Developing Art, named after famed Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. It uses AI models similar to those powering tools like OpenAI's ChatGPT. 
Here's how it works. Once an operator specifies a concept for a painting, the robot uses machine learning to create a simulation and develop a plan. It displays a color palette on a computer screen for a human to mix. Once Frida starts, it uses an overhead camera to take an image of the painting and check its progress. If it makes a mistake, it incorporates the misplaced splodge into the painting, just like an artist would. Jim McCann is an artist professor at Carnegie Mellon's Robotics Institute. Frida's doing something that most robots don't. Frida is using the kind of AI models that have been then developed to do things like caption images and understand scene content and applying it to this artistic generative problem. And Frida is doing that by planning in a semantic space, a space of meaning instead of a, a space of outputs. So Frida really is like a painter and not a printer, which is a cool thing. McCann says Frida is a project exploring the intersection of human and robot creativity. These days, a lot of what we automate is really, really precise, but painting is not. And Frida, especially the way Frida plans and works, uh, is imprecise. It's this kind of imprecise tool. But with its ability to collaborate on complex paintings, is Frida using artist expression? McCann says it's complicated. On one hand, it could be very reductionist and say, again, artistic expression is this, this mysterious thing we don't understand. We understand how Frida works. On the other hand, we could turn this around and say, well, what does an artist do but distill uh, some subset of the zeitgeist, distill some subset of what people around them are saying and doing, and turn that into an expression? And in which case, that's exactly what Frida is doing. Seeing the Northern Lights for many people is a bucket list event involving expensive trips to Iceland or Scandinavia and extensive planning. But this week, all you may have had to do is look outside your window. The Northern Lights are usually most visible near the Earth's magnetic north and south poles. But thanks to clear skies across the UK and Ireland, the light spectacle has reached as far south as Cornwall and Hertfordshire. To witness the Northern Lights so far south in the UK is an extremely rare event. But the Met Office there says that under severe space weather conditions, the lights can be seen throughout the UK and parts of Ireland. So the northern lights are uh, emissions of light in the night sky and they're caused by uh, particles from space raining down the Earth's magnetic field and hitting the top of the Earth's atmosphere and it causes the atmosphere to glow. This is Professor Jim Wilder, Professor of Space Physics at Lancaster University. Green and red glows you typically get are from oxygen in the upper atmosphere that are just glowing under this bombardment of particles from the, the space environment outside our atmosphere. Normally this is seen around the edge of the Arctic Circle, but this week something changed. The Earth was actually um, uh, enveloped in a, in, a, in a cloud of material that had been emitted by the sun a couple of days earlier, last Friday, Friday of last week. And after travelling through space, this material arrived at the planet, then arrived at Earth, and, and this triggered the northern lights to become more active, more energetic, and that pushed the northern lights further south than you'd normally find them. So instead of being sat somewhere off the coast of, say, Norway, 
the Northern Lights were sat somewhere off the coast of Scotland. And so throughout the British Isles, people could look north and see these lights in the sky. And if you miss this rare spectacle, fear not. Astronomer Tom Curse has travelled far north to see the sweeping curtain of light more than 100 times. But he says we can see this magic closer to home. Events like the one that we've seen for the past couple of nights are quite extraordinarily rare. However, aurora sightings in general are becoming more common as we approach the peak of the solar cycle. So if you're willing to make the trip, if you're in the UK, you could always consider Scotland. You don't have to go overseas. But if you want to consider a trip for this season or perhaps the next one as we go into the autumn and winter next year, well, you're going to have very good chances to see beautiful displays. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.